Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 7. Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. June the 6th, 1944, is a day that we call D-Day. It was on that day that Allied forces invaded Western Europe to liberate, liberate them from Nazi control. There were more than 150,000 soldiers involved, some of them from Homestead, by the way. There were 6,900 ships, 4,100 landing craft, and 12,000 airplanes. Within two weeks, there was an additional 628,000 men, 95,000 vehicles, and 218,000 tons of supplies. It was one of the biggest and greatest invasions in all of history. 2,000 years ago, however, there was an even greater invasion that took place. God did something about the problem of sin and death. God did something about all of the hatred and the evil and all of the oppression that is in this world. God invaded earth. And when he did so, he didn't do so by sending an army of angels. He came in the form of a baby born of a virgin. He did something that was so extraordinary, we still celebrate today, even though there is not a single verse in the Bible that tells us that we have to celebrate Christmas. We do so because of what it means, what happened in Bethlehem's manger is so significant, it is so great, it gives us a reason to rejoice, a reason to have hope, no matter what is going on in the world around us, or no matter what may be happening in your life today. Over 700 years before Jesus was born, God inspired the prophet Isaiah to write about his birth. Now, when you read Isaiah and what he has to say about Christmas, it's almost as if God had given to him an advanced copy of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. But God said through Isaiah, one day when the Messiah comes, here are some things that you can expect. Now, he's already said that a virgin will conceive. He's already said that he'll be Emmanuel. He'll be God with us. And this morning in chapter 9, he's going to go even deeper. It's amazing how much we can learn about Jesus' birth before we even get to the New Testament, long before the wise men, long before the shepherds arrived, long before the angels sang God spoke through Isaiah about the meaning of Christmas. Unfortunately, so many people this year will go through all of the motions and the trappings of Christmas without really understanding what it's all about. But there are three things in particular that we can learn about Jesus' birth 
through Isaiah, through this prophecy that was made 700 years before he was even born, first of all, we notice the miracle of his incarnation. We see the miracle of his incarnation. Look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Let me pause right there. There is a very important doctrine here. We call it the doctrine of the incarnation. That simply means that God became man by being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in this particular message defending the virgin birth, but I will say this. If you believe in the creation, you should have no problem believing in the incarnation because the same God who created the universe by the power of his word is able to cause a virgin to conceive. And the incarnation simply means that this baby who was born would be both fully God and fully man. And I want you to notice how we see both in the first part of verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and for unto us a son is given. Now, Isaiah, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is being very, very particular about the words that he's using as the child who is born. Jesus had an earthly arrival. He was born just like you, just like me. But as the son who is given, he already existed even before his conception. The child who is born points to his humanity. The son who is given points to his divinity. A child who is born means he was the son of man. A son is given means the son of God. In fact, we can't even read that phrase, a son is given, without thinking about John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What happened? A son was given. A child is born, points to the cradle. A son is given, points to the cross. I love what the late Adrian Rogers said about this. He said, when Jesus was born, the infinite became the infant. R.G. Lee said that Jesus is the only person who at the moment of his birth was older than his mother and just as old as his father. And of course, this is mystery. there's mystery here. And there's so much here that we can't fully understand, we can't fully grasp. But we're not called to completely understand it. We are called to believe it. And let me tell you, if you take the incarnation and if you take the virgin birth out of the word of God, what you have left is not the gospel. There are a lot of people that struggle with this doctrine. There are some people who say, well, this makes God out to be small. This makes God out to be weak. I can remember years ago, I was sharing the gospel with a Muslim woman, and she said to me, there's just no way a God so great could ever become a man. 
Well, listen to me carefully. This doctrine of the incarnation, it does not minimize God's strength. It actually magnifies God's strength. And let me explain this as simply as I possibly can. I was born in Jacksonville on the west side. Jacksonville's a great city, but uh, it can be a little bit rough on the the west side, if you know what I mean. Uh, I grew up in a pretty tough neighborhood, and uh, little boys in that neighborhood on the west side, they had this little game that they would play. I'm sure boys play this game everywhere, Uh, but it was a debate that little boys would have. I mean, seven years old, eight years old, little boys would have this debate, and the name of it was called my daddy can beat up your daddy anybody ever play that game when you were little okay Uh, one little boy would say to another little boy well my daddy can beat up your daddy and the other little boy would say well my daddy can beat up your daddy with one arm tied behind his back the other little boy might say well my daddy can beat up your daddy with both arms tied behind his back and then the other little boy would say well my daddy can beat up your daddy with just his pinky finger Now, I'm not telling you this debate made any sense, okay? Hear me out. I'm just telling you how it went down. But could you imagine a man who's so strong, all he needed to defeat all of his enemies was just the power of his pinky finger? How strong would such a man be if that's all he needs? Folks, here is what God is saying in verse 6. He says, this is how I'm going to overcome the powers of hell. This is how I'm going to overcome sin and death and this world, not with the power of my pinky finger. Oh, no. God says, I'm going to use something much, much smaller than that. God says, I'm going to overcome by a tiny child conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. Can you think of anything smaller than that? Can you think of anything more vulnerable than that? You see, the doctrine of the incarnation says that God is so amazing and he is so mighty He is so strong that he can make himself present in something as small as a one-cell zygote. And even in that moment, he is stronger than all of the powers of hell. It says that our God is so strong that God as an embryo in the womb of a virgin is still in that moment more powerful than all of the nations combined. And that's why I say the doctrine of the incarnation does not minimize God's power. It actually magnifies God's power. And it says, this is how strong our God is. And so we see the miracle of his incarnation. There's something else that we notice in this passage. We see the uniqueness of his character. We see the uniqueness of his character. Now, going back to that sixth verse, Isaiah is going to list some different titles to describe this child who will be born and this son who will be given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Now, let's look at each of these words. He is called wonderful. We use the word wonderful a lot. Someone will say, I had a wonderful time. You might refer to someone that you respect as being a wonderful person. Husbands, I hope you say to your wives, you look wonderful. But do you understand that in the Bible, this word wonderful, that Hebrew word wonderful, was used to describe God alone. In the Hebrew way of thinking, you referred to God as wonderful and no one else. This word never appears to describe anyone but God. And just like it sounds in the English, that word means full of wonder. And likewise, we should be full of awe and wonder when we consider him. Notice he's called Wonderful Counselor. As the wonderful counselor, he gives us wisdom. He perfectly instructs us. His counsel is always right. We're always better off when we follow it. There are a lot of counselors in the world today. Praise God for them. But you know, one counselor will tell you one thing today, and another counselor will tell you something else tomorrow, something altogether different. But when you come to Jesus... When you come to the wonderful counselor that he is, he doesn't give opinions. He speaks the truth because he himself is the truth. And of course, in the ancient world, every king had counselors, and that is still true today. I read an article that said that the president of the United States typically has 131 advisors. Whoever the president is at any given time, there are 131 people whose job it is to counsel the president, give advice to the president in this area or that. Well, Isaiah said, this child who will be born, this son who will be given, this king when he comes, he's not going to need any counselors to advise him because he himself is wonderful counselor. He's called mighty God. Mighty God. In the Hebrew, it's El Gabor. Do you understand that no other Jewish child in the Bible was ever called by this title, was ever called El Gabor. Every time it appears in the Old Testament, it is used to describe God. That famous Psalm, Psalm 24, who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He uses that same title, El Gabor, the Lord mighty in battle. And then Isaiah uses that same title to describe this baby that he said would one day be born. In fact, Isaiah uses this title again in the very next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 10. Now, in my Bible, it's just one flip of the page. But in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, I want you to notice something that Isaiah does. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, 
but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Notice he says, the Lord, that word in the Hebrew is Yahweh. They will come to, they will depend upon Yahweh. Then in verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. There it is again, mighty God, El Gabor. Now notice this, in verse 20, he's called Yahweh, and to Yahweh is applied that title, mighty God, and the same title that Isaiah gave to Yahweh in chapter 10, he gives to the baby who will be born in chapter 9. He says this baby will be El Gabor, mighty God. Jesus was and is mighty God and will be forever. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Notice he's called Everlasting Father. Isaiah is not talking about God the Father. He's not talking about the Trinity this time. This phrase can also be translated Father of Eternity. In other words, the one who invented time. What an amazing thought. That the same God who invented time will then enter into time for a specific amount of time in order to save us for a timeless eternity in his presence. That's why Jesus is called in Revelation the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He reigned for all eternity past and will reign for all eternity future. He is the father of eternity. He invented time and was even at the moment of his birth. By the way, the next time you are waiting on God and it seems like you have to wait on the Lord and wait and wait and wait and it seems like the waiting will never end and you are tempted to question God's timing, remember the God we serve is the father of eternity. His timing is always perfect and therefore he is never early and he is never late. He is always on time. And notice he's also called the prince of peace. He is the prince of peace because the only real peace you'll have, the peace that lasts, is the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Because for us to have the peace of God, we first have to have peace with God. And that's why Jesus came. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself, referring to Christ, for he himself is our peace. The peace that we have comes through knowing a person. It's a peace treaty offered at Bethlehem and signed in Jesus' blood at Calvary. Now, we'll talk about this piece more in just a moment, but there's one more thing about the birth of this child that we see in Isaiah 9. We see some of the results of his coming. The results of his coming. Because the Messiah, because Jesus, will be all of these things that we just read in verse 6. There are some things that will take place when he comes 
or because he came. There are some things that will be the result of his coming. And I love what Isaiah is doing here. This is something that we see numerous times uh, in the scriptures, particularly in the prophets. It's called uh, the prophetical, uh, the perfect prophetic tense uh, or the prophetic past tense. That is when a prophet will speak about a future event, something that has not happened yet, but he'll refer to it in the past tense as if it's already taken place. Because when God says something is going to happen, it is so sure, it's so certain, it is as if it has already taken place. And so I want you to see four things in particular that result from his coming. Four things that will end one day because of this child who was born and this son who is given. First, his birth means the end of darkness. It means the end of darkness. Go back to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. A lost person lives in a state of darkness. And when you're in the dark, you can't see. You can't see who you are. You can't see where you are. You can't see what is around you. And you can't see where you are going. And when a person is spiritually in the dark, they can't see who they are, where they are. They cannot see what is their meaning in life. They cannot see their purpose in life. They can't see truth. They are spiritually in darkness. But Jesus' birth changes all of that. For everyone who knows Christ, he came from heaven to earth so that we can know God and glorify God and enjoy God forever. He brought light to our darkness. His birth means the end of darkness for those who know him. His birth also means the end of despair. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. It's pretty interesting that Isaiah would write about uh, the people being multiplied and the people rejoicing. Because when Isaiah wrote these words, these were hard times. These were very hard times. You think times are hard now. There was a storm cloud that was on the horizon, and that storm had a name. The name of the storm, when Isaiah wrote these words, was called Assyria. Assyria was the dominant world power at the time. And you know what was happening? They were conquering nations one after another like a bowling ball knocking down pins. And they were heading Judah's way and eventually would come right up to Judah's doorstep. And the people were absolutely terrified. I guarantee you, nobody was talking about whether or not their nation was going to be enlarged, whether it was going to be multiplied. Nobody was talking about the people rejoicing. That was not the conversation. They were talking about whether or not they were about to be annihilated. They were talking about whether or not they would even survive. And in this context, 
Isaiah responds and he says, because this baby will be born, God's people can have joy like at the harvest when the harvest is abundant. He said, we can have joy like soldiers who've just won a great victory in battle and they're dividing up the spoils of war. Because Jesus came and because he died, because he rose again, listen, our joy does not depend upon what happens in this world. It doesn't depend upon our circumstances. It is based on this gift that God gave to us at Bethlehem, a gift that this world cannot take away from us. And so his birth means the end of despair for those who know him. It also means the end of oppression. It means the end of oppression. Look at verse 4. For you've broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Now notice this. As in the day of Midian. Isaiah is referring to a story from the book of Judges. You've probably heard, you probably remember the story of Gideon. You remember how in Gideon's day, God's people were being oppressed, not by the Assyrians, but in those days by the Midianites. Oh, how they were being oppressed by the Midianites. God came to Gideon and said, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from their oppressors. First, you recall, God had to reduce the size of the army. He had to get it nice and small so that only God would get the glory. Got all the way down to just 300 men. But God said, don't worry, Gideon, because I'm going to fight the battle for you and the battle will be won before you can even lift your sword. And sure enough, God caused confusion in the Midianite camp and they turned against one another and God gave them victory from their oppressors in the days of Gideon. And so here is Isaiah, centuries later, he refers back to that story and he refers back to that day. And in verse four, he says, just as God delivered his people from their oppressors, the Midianites, one day this baby who will be born will deliver God's people from all of their oppressors in this world. And one day, those who know Christ will be able to enjoy uh, eternity in his presence without anyone to oppress them. Oppression will be over, and corruption will be over, and injustice will be over. One other thing that his birth means the end of, and it means the end of conflict. Look at verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Why are those soldiers going to burn their sandals and their garments of war? Because they're not going to need them anymore because there won't be any more wars being fought. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Notice, peace that does not end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it 
and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In verse 6, this child is called the Prince of Peace. In verse 5, the verse immediately before, we're told that the weapons of war will no longer be needed because nations aren't going to rise up against nations anymore and there will be peace that does not end. The same Jesus who came to give us peace peace with God. One day He's going to come again so that we will have everlasting peace, not just with God, but with one another. You know, peace is so fragile. Peace is so fragile. The kind of peace we have in the world today, it can be shattered by a single sniper's bullet. That's all it takes, just one. The kind of peace that we have in this world today can be shattered by just one terrorist bomb. Just one. That's all it takes. There's nothing, Isaiah said, that can destroy this peace that Jesus will establish. He describes this peace in even greater detail when we get to chapter 11. And so I want to just read to you in verses 6 through 9 his description of this peace. And we can debate how much of this is literal and how much of this is figurative, but there is no doubt he is describing a peace unlike anything that man has ever known since the fall. But in Isaiah 11, verse 6, this is what he says. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child, and I, I shudder when I read this. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I believe he's describing what will be the millennial reign of Christ. Others will say, no, this is uh, after that, but... He's certainly describing a kind of peace that we long for. In our hearts, don't we long for this? But listen to me carefully. There will never be a peace that man can produce that would cause the wolf and the lamb and the leopard and the goat to all lie down together. And nobody is eating anybody. There is no peace that man will ever be able to produce on his own that could cause cobras and vipers to stop biting. So much so that you could allow a little toddler to play with them and not have anything to worry about. We can't produce that kind of peace. There's no peace that we can produce that would turn lions into vegetarians. But Jesus can. And he will. 2,000 years ago, God invaded earth 
in order to make all of this possible, to bring all of this about for his people, the Son of God, born of a virgin, he lived a perfect sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He rose victoriously from the grave. And this is God's gift to every one of us. Leonardo da Vinci painted a famous painting called Salvador Mundi, which translates Savior of the World. And this painting of Jesus sold a few years ago, four or five years ago, for, brace yourself, $450 million. Someone out there spent $450 million on a painting of Jesus that I guarantee you does not even look like Jesus. But you know what? God is offering us something much, much better than that today. Not a picture of Jesus, but Jesus himself. And he's not for sale. He is God's gift and he is offered freely to anyone who will believe upon him and receive him as Savior and Lord. Would you join me as we pray right now? Oh God, how we thank you that you did what you said you would do. A child was born. A son was given. And he was and he is everything you said he would be. He is wonderful. And he is the greatest counselor. He is God in human flesh, the mighty God, the one who invented time, the prince of peace. All of this and so much more. We thank you. We thank you that you have offered to us such a precious gift at no cost to us, freely to everyone who is willing to receive him by believing in him and confessing him as Lord. So, Father, help us to take this wonderful news and not keep it to ourselves this Christmas. There are so many people around us who kind of know that Christmas has something to do about Jesus' birth, but they don't understand why his birth is so significant, that Jesus, when he was born, that he was all of these things, that he came to do all of these things, and they need to know. And God, you've given to us this wonderful news to share. Help us this Christmas not to keep this to ourselves, but to announce to everyone this precious, wonderful gift that has been given for anyone who is willing to receive him. And Father, if there's anyone here today in this room right now who's never received this free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, God, how I pray that this would be their day, even their moment of salvation in which they, they quit playing that foolish game of trying to save themselves, but that they would come with empty hands to Jesus saying, Jesus I come to you, I believe in you, I receive you, save me now. Have your way, oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed for just a moment. 
As I've said, this is the greatest gift anyone uh, could ever offer. If you're here today and you've never received that gift, the Bible tells us how to receive it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is a declaration that He is Lord, that He is King, and that He, that you are under His authority. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, put your faith in Him, that He died and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you need to make that declaration for the first time today. 